Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Rick Wallach is a founding member of the Cormac McCarthy Society. He is senior editor of the Cormac McCarthy Society casebook series and editor of the two-volume collection of essays, Sacred Violence, as well as Myth, Legend, Dust, Critical Responses to Cormac McCarthy. And he is co-editor with Linnea Chapman King and the late James Welsh of From Novel to Film, No Country for Old Men. He has written widely and extensively on numerous topics in literature, film, media, and contemporary music, such as the music of the Cowboy Junkies. Rick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Scott, thank you for having me. You were my choice, along with Steve Fry and Diane Luce, for the three people I wanted on the first three podcasts. And you kept saying, no, we'll do it sometime. No, use these other people. No, we'll do it sometime. And then you had a, you had a pretty rough year, so I'm very glad to be able to talk to you here, and you seem to be doing well. So thanks for that. I'm feeling well and, and recovering nicely, slowly but nicely. And, uh, you know, I just missed the uh, Popular Culture Association conference in Albuquerque. You know, they had a Cormac session, which I always attend. Uh, you know, it's the first time in year. Well, last year, the pandemic washed it out, but I was on the Zoom version. Uh, this first one I've missed, and I don't know, it must be 10 years. Mm. That kind of thing is, is disconcerting, but overall, things are, things are moving along nicely. I'm glad. And, and I have to ask you a really stupid question, but I do think it's an important question. If you're going to have a popular culture association conference in Albuquerque, there have to be panels on Bugs Bunny. I don't Bugs Bunny. But uh, there was a, a big uh, Joss Whedon section, uh, and he's fallen into you know disrepute recently. So I don't know what happened with that. I don't uh, know. But a, I know Bugs always took a left turn at Albuquerque when he went awry. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Well, at the Whedon thing, who knows? It, I think we're at a place where we no longer separate art and artist. And I am pretty sure, though, if we relegate ourselves to only very morally respectable people are the ones whose art we're going to consider and enjoy. We're going to be limiting ourselves to some pretty boring stuff. Oh, I absolutely, you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, what, what, what do we do without Henry Miller after all? Well, exactly. <laughs> we're all glad that none of us were married to Ernest Hemingway. Uh, but I'm pretty thankful for those first few books of stories and first couple of novels. Now, Rick, we've, all heard the story before, but let's get it now from the proverbial velociraptor's mouth. <laughs> how how did you discover McCarthy? You want a little background to that? Uh, yeah, give us the, okay. the whole the whole enchilada, as they say. I was in a uh, uh, an interdisciplinary quote unquote program at New York University for my master's degree, and I decided to do it in psychology and literature, even though my first master's is in theology, which is really oriental theology, Hinduism, Buddhism, Shinto. And, but anyway, I was writing my thesis on Patrick White, the Australian noble, right. uh, who has always been a big favorite of mine. And I, I went to Australia uh, with my wife, and I, uh, I was visiting with a 
wonderful and, and venerable old professor in Melbourne at Victoria Polytechnic named John McLaren, who was a Patrick White scholar and who, in fact, published my first published critical article on oh, Patrick wonderful. White. And this was 1991. And I had already, we'd already been in Sydney for a couple of weeks, and I'd been walking White streets and checking the, his archives and so on. And I was sitting around with John in, in his kitchen, and he said, uh, so who is worth reading in, you know, in the States these days? And I mentioned Pinchon, DeLeo, you know, the usual suspects. Right. And he said, what about McCarthy? And I said, well, sh she doesn't interest me all that much. <laughs> I thought he meant Mary. Mary McCarthy. Mary right. McCarthy. And I, I said, in fact, I said, the only thing she's ever written that really interested me was her review of Nabokov's Pale Fire, which I thought <laughs> was, had no real, you know, interest. And he said, no, no, Cormac McCarthy. And I said, I never heard of him. Now, you got to remember, in 1991, all the pretty horses hadn't been published yet. That was a I, year away. And Cormac was totally out of print in the United States. Not one single book of his was in print. Right. And... Uh, yeah, the only paperback of any of his works but had been out there was the uh, the Orchard Keeper paperback, you know, the the uh, yeah. Ballantyne paperback. So I had no idea who he was talking about. And he said, well, Cormac McCarthy is is maybe your best writer. And I said, oh, all right. I'll. <laughs> so a few days later, uh, we found ourselves in Adelaide. We were taking this wonderful train called the GAN from Adelaide to Alice Springs, an overnight train trip. And I had checked all of our luggage and like an idiot forgot to take a book to read out of the luggage. Now it's all tucked underneath the train car. So I ducked into the chemist, as they call the you know, drugstore at the railroad station. And I'm turning one of those racks around and then there's Blood Meridian, the Picador edition. Cormac McCarthy said, oh, that's the guy that John was talking about. So I snatched it off the rack and got on the train and, and we started to Alice Springs. I, I'd just eaten kangaroo for the first time in a, in a you know, for lunch, you know, and it was kangaroo couscous <laughs> in a restaurant near the, near the railroad station. And it was horrible. <laughs> you know, I said it before, but I remember eating it and thinking, well, I've never eaten rat either, but this must be what it tastes like. Right. Oh, anyway, so I, you know, Rowena, my wife was tired. We had driven all the way to Adelaide from Melbourne along the coastal road. That is a long trip. And she, just wanted to conk out, get to sleep early. So she bunked out into the parlor car. Uh, the parlor car in Australian trains has a, a new atmosphere, you know. Uh, it, it's kind of like Venus, but worse. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting reading Blood Meridian. And I sat there literally all night long and read the novel cover to cover. And I completed reading it just as I finished the novel. And I, was, I think I must have exhaled for the first time in six hours. Huh. There was a blood-red sun coming up in the east. Australia, the, the ground is, is full of iron. And so the soil is red. It's red right. soil, red sun. Uh, <laughs> we were passing Woomera, which was where the Australians let the British conduct their atomic bomb experiments. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it just, which, which sort of... Uh, you know, predicted uh, the closing of uh, uh, <laughs> the crossing, you know. And for that matter, who knows whether that's still part of the road or not. Yeah, cities of the planet. Yeah, and, 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 and well, you know, my feeling about the road is that it's definitely a nuclear war. I don't right. buy this me meteorite stuff, but we can get into that later. Okay. 
one of my questions I had written down was why Australia, but you've answered that. And it, it completely shows me where I went wrong in going to graduate school in Alabama and riding on William Faulkner because Mississippi is only one state over. And I was only a few hours drive to Oxford. I made the drive all the time to do a little bit of research and really just to, to visit much of Faulkner comes alive when you see Oxford. Oh, absolutely. Well, were you, were you at the McCarthy conference we had in Oxford? No, I was not. Oh, that was, I mean, it was like a, a Faulkner infused McCarthy concert uh, conference. It was very interesting, but as for why Australia, you know, I, it keeps me from getting as far as Antarctica and I have <laughs> an, and I have a horror of penguins. So, you know, <laughs> multitask anyway continue you have a horror of penguins but i know for a fact you've had gila monsters and rattlesnakes as pets yes and i also have an enormous albino snapping turtle named the judge of course of course it's the judge yeah what else would i call it right exactly i got that i got him as a hatchling out of a mud puddle on long island uh, and I didn't realize he was an albino. He was just covered with mud. I, you know, recognized him as a baby snapping turtle. And I picked him out of the uh, puddle and I got home and rinsed him off. And he was white. Ah. Oh, my God, an albino snapping turtle. And now he's, you know, he's like 25, 30 pounds. And, <laughs> he's, he's now an urban legend from the sewers is what he is. Yeah, the really. albino crocodiles in the sewers and so on. So, of course, one of the reasons your name is so well known among Cormacians, as we've all referred to ourselves in Cormac McCarthy studies, is you're instrumental in founding the society, you're instrumental in helping to edit some of the first significant books of essays and critical articles on McCarthy. Can you tell me a little bit about how the Cormac McCarthy Society came to be formed? Well, it was uh a direct consequence of that first conference in Cormac McCarthy in October 93 at Bellarmine College in Louisville. I know Peter talked at length about the setup, the run-up to the conference, so I won't go back over that. Uh, but I met Chip and I met Diane there for the first time. I met Nell Sullivan there for the first time. I met Mar uh, Marty Perillo wasn't there. Uh, but when I got home, I, I looked up the, the McCarthy fan site that uh, Marty had set up and that I didn't know about. And then I got in touch with Marty and that website, the existence of that website formed what in, in meteorology we would call the uh, nucleus of precipitation around <laughs> which the society, the society formed. To pause you for one second, I should say that Chip is Edwin T. Arnold, kind of one of the great early, maybe the, along with Diane Luce, the most significant early critic of, of McCarthy's work and who's written some of the best great cogent essays early on there as well. Nell Sullivan has done excellent work in McCarthy and is on our Outer Dark episode. Marty Perola, of course, was also, uh, we talked to him about the website as well. So yeah, the website was, uh, the website was the thing that, that brought all of these uh, amorphous ideas I had about a McCarthy society to sort of fruition. I, I, I spoke to Marty, he was all for it. Uh, I called Chip back and we started talking about all the things that the a Cormac McCarthy Society could do. Uh, and, and Chip has said in the past, you know, I, I've got this madman on the phone <laughs> talking <laughs> about it. <laughs> it was it was good fun. And it, it we just started to do it. It, it didn't take long to, to gel. Uh, I, I should tell you one other thing, because uh, with regard to that first conference, which has not been covered yet, is that John Sepich had uh. been working for many years on a pen club 
uh, on Blood Meridian. And he would send out mimeographed or Xerox copies of, of essays that he had written on Blood Meridian. And he was doing the first really extensive research. Tom Young Jr., who was the son of Thomas Young, the Faulkner scholar, oh, yeah. was also writing the first dissertation on McCarthy. It was called Cormac McCarthy and the Geology of Being. And in fact, that whole first generation of McCarthy scholars were actually Faulkner scholars. Yep. All of them were. Diane. Well, except. Vereen Bell. You know, ex- except Rick Wallach. Except me. Well, no, I actually had published a couple of articles on Faulkner before I discovered McCarthy. Uh, I, I did one on the bear and Moby Dick called Moby Bear. It was in the, the, the uh, uh, MLA Southern Samla Journal. And another one, the title of which I no longer remember. That was South Atlantic I, Review. I, you're going to love this. I used, I used the book Merger Mania by the disgraced insider trader <laughs> Ivan Boski to parse Jason Compson's stock market flailings in The Sound of the Fury. Now, I wrote it as a complete joke, <laughs> but it got published and people took it very, anyway, they took it seriously. So I, I was already knee deep in Faulkner, uh, you know, at the time. But in any case, Sepich had sent me a bunch of these essays and I called him where he was living in North Carolina and in, in squirrel nut zipper country. And, uh, and I said, <laughs> you know, come, you remember them? I, I did. said, come on, listen. I'll, I'll send you a ticket, fly up here, let's sit down and let's let's put this thing together into a coherent book of essays on Blood Meridian. So he came up and he stayed at my house and we worked nonstop for days on this thing. And that became Notes on Blood Meridian. And Jay McGowan, who was president of Bellarmine, who was an old friend of mine, Bellarmine had a, a, a printing and editing and journalism program, and they had a one and we, we invented the non-existent Bellarmine University Press ah. to publish the first edition of Blood Meridian. Or the Notes on Blood Meridian. Notes on Blood Meridian, yeah. Right. And, and then <laughs> uh, Bellarmine University Press ceased to exist thereafter. We printed about 500 copies, and they sold out inside of six months. Wow. And now you find them on eBay for $1,200. Which is astounding to think that. So first, I'm really amazed that I had read McCarthy before you did, because I would never have dreamed that was possible. <laughs> Thanks to the largesse of a professor of mine who's a lot like you and that if you find someone who doesn't know about things they should, will push books on them and say, you've got to go read this. Yeah. And in his case, I think his wife was trying to make him downsize, although I gave these books back. So he didn't get rid of them like he did with some others he gave me. I never, ever get my copies back. No. Well, you often buy copies for people, as uh, Peter Joseph told us. And, and just go give them to them and say, here you go. These are what you're supposed to be reading. So, yeah, it's a kind of a benevolent profligacy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a way of spreading influence, right? If they're reading the right people, they'll, they'll start thinking properly and understanding things about the world a little differently. So those early anthologies of the essays are incredibly formative and important to the field of McCarthy studies. You told us about Sepik's you know, incredible book. Tell us about how some of these other anthologies and these collections came to be and what the process was like for you. The the Sacred Violence Collection was mostly essays that were given as papers at the first conference. And that's the first edition of Sacred Violence, a single volume edition. Wade Hall and I, Wade was the head of the English department at Bellarmine. He was an old McCarthy fan. 
I don't consider myself one of the first generation McCarthy scholars. I'm like second wave, you know, I was, I was new wave. <clears throat> and, <laughs> so, so you're not punk, you're new wave. You're the cars instead, yeah, of, yeah. instead of the clash. Okay. Yeah, exactly. More, more like cowboy junkies instead of the, uh, you know, the clash. But <laughs> as far as I can tell, I was the first, as I call myself, unreconstructed post-structuralist uh, <laughs> to become a McCarthy scholar and to start looking at his work uh, from a deconstructive perspective. Huh. And I still can't get anything published by Texas, by the uh, University of Texas Press, because they don't, they, they refuse to publish post-structuralist criticism of any kind. It's just a thing they have. Uh, that's all right. I found other sources, obviously. <laughs> yeah, so sacred violence came together pretty quickly. And if you'll recall, back in those days, if you weren't a new critic, everyone was trying to parse McCarthy with Rene Girard. Right. Because the books were so bloody. And, and for the listeners who are not been through a critical theory class lately his his famous works are about what he calls the sacrificial crisis and just the whole way that violence and ritual and sacrifice have been used in western culture yeah and and violence and the sacred was one of his most popular books right so we just we just you know inside outski with it and turned it from violence and the sacred into sacred violence and uh gerard also uh, was kind of the the stepchild of the post the French post structural right in a lot of ways he sort of hung up midway between Jumble and, and and Jacques Derrida you know which I found fascinating yeah people were looking for a wedge to break into McCarthy uh, he was he was something that they that hadn't been seen before you know I mean the closest thing to McCarthy you could find in American popular culture was the you know the the, the Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre films yeah. you know? <laughs> A lot of people were put off by that, uh, that you had this, this gorgeous prose, I mean, at breathtaking prose, and this horrible violence. It was like some of the choreographed violence in the film version of Clockwork Orange. Right. Well, you know, Rick, it's funny because the first book I tried to read of the two that were loaned to me was Blood Meridian, and the violence put me off, and I had to leave it for a while. Yeah. And instead, I ended up reading Sutri first so that's interesting you're right the violence was was everywhere and so again those early approaches and calling it sacred violence seems to have really opened a lot of doors as well what about uh the other couple of of collections on at that time okay well uh you know that that um we took uh sacred violence and then uh expand actually at the request of, of texas western press we expanded it to two volumes and solicited a lot of additional essays. And by then, McCarthy scholarship had evolved eventually in the four or five years you know, that, it, that it interceded. Wade had retired, but you know, I, I kept him on the, uh, on, the ma- you know, on the masthead there. So the two-volume set of Sacred Bonds was the next one that came down the pipe, from me anyway. And uh, then I think I contributed pieces to a couple of other uh, anthologies like uh, uh, James Lilly uh, put out uh, a collection uh, on McCarthy, and uh, so did one or two other people. And I had essays in those that they they, they called and solicited me. And then I went ah. to a period when I seemed to be getting requests from everybody who was writing a book on McCarthy to write the introduction for them. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that there are five or six introductions uh, along those lines. Uh, the the collection of essays that came out of the Manchester, uh, not the Manchester, the um, Birmingham conference. 
you know, that, that, uh, that Nick Monk put together uh, and uh, 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 Manuel Brancano's book and then, then Dave Holloway's book, which, by the way, you know, to me, Dave is a, is a, is a uh, neo-Marxist critic. Right. And uh, and his book on McCarthy uh, is uh, one of the best out there. You know, it, it, the late modernism, the late modernism of Cormac McCarthy. I think it's just stunning. Uh, Sent me the manuscript and it, it blew me away. I was knocked out. It's it's the only socio political slash economic reading of McCarthy out there, and it's absolutely brilliant. It, it, it it's as good as anything Frederick Jameson could have done. So uh, I was I was thrilled and honored that he asked me to write that intro. And, you know, that's a very difficult, there are some, some of these early books, and it, unfortunately, it's the way a lot of academic presses work, since most of their sales are to academic libraries, they price them for academic libraries. And so as a result, they are they're very expensive to find. And so- Oh, they're horribly expensive. Yeah. And the use copies are even more expensive. Uh, you know, that is unfortunate. Um, yeah. You know, fine book like like late modernism. Uh, another one in that in that category would be Jay uh, Ellis's No Place for Home. Right, uh, but, but you know what, which Jay? Is another brilliant. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say what Jay has done that they haven't, if I'm correct, is he's published it as an ebook also, yes. which makes it much more affordable. And all those of us of a certain age who have read a lot, I think, almost always prefer it on the printed page, but. If it's a choice between paying $25 for an ebook or $150 for the used paperback, I'm usually going to go with the ebook in that case, since I do have kids who are thinking they want to go to college. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I'm, I'm all in favor of ebook from that point of view, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a dinosaur that way. And, yeah. and I like the feel of a book in my hand. I like the feel of the pages turning between my fingers. I even love books that are printed and bound in the old style where you need to use a paper cutter to cut the yeah. pages, you know, to cut the folios to, you know, and then they all have that decalage, you know, books, books that come with a, a you know, preform, you know, prefab decal edge. Yeah. The, the faux decal edge. Yeah. The faux decal edge. I, I like those. So, you know, when, when you teach the great Gatsby, you always have to explain to your students how many of the higher quality printing houses didn't cut the pages of the books and that many of the pages had to be cut with a, you know, a knife or razor, the um, letter opener. And it's always astounding to them. And then I ask them about deckled edges and it's amazing how many of them, of course, don't ever go out and buy books. So I know I'll tell you a funny, a quick little anecdote about that. Uh, my late mother-in-law uh, who's British and who did book binding as a hobby, beautiful work too, uh, told me, that when she was a uh, you know youngster, that uh, books would come with the with the pages you know folded over in folio, and they right. would come with a little pretty little uh, uh, paper knife, you know, oh, part wow. of the kit of the book, the book and the paper knife. This is well, this is Britain, you know. I mean, of I, course, yeah. Uh, and uh, I was just utterly charmed by that. And she had several of these little paper knives she'd had since she was young. Uh, you know, in a drawer. And I just marveled over what beautiful little works of art these things were. That is incredible. And it just... I mean, the kind of thing that, 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 that you know, a, a, a dwarf would commit sepulchral with, you know, I mean, it just... <laughs> <laughs> well, it does make you think about, on the other hand, the kind of, we had that balanced with the snobbishness they showed paperbacks. 
and the idea that if you went and bought books, it didn't really count if it was in paperback. And it was, you know, it's only really because of World War II that paperbacks did become so much more popular and so much more prolific because they were, you know, printing these small hip pocket editions for the soldiers. And suddenly those became much more common. There were paperback books being published, you know, uh, since the middle 1800s. Yeah. Penny dreadfuls. Penny dreadfuls and pulps. And And by the way, I let me interject that that it's been one of my contentions, and I haven't really developed it fully. I, I hope I live long enough to do it because it's a pet project of mine. That there's a great element of satire and parody in Blood Meridian of that generation of publishing, but the subtitles, you know, uh, what have you, uh, right? The subchapter headings and things like that. The uh, the the type, the, you know, the font, but also just the stories themselves. You know, they're, they're, they're almost like a lot of you know, metastatic Penny Dreadful stories strung together. Well, of course, the, the Penny Dreadfuls particularly really applies to the gothic vampire stuff, but even the proto-Westerns that came out. So if you look up a couple of the early books on Jesse James and Billy the Kid, they're exactly had the same titles, uh, the interstitial signposts between the chapter title and the actual chapter starting, just like you see in yeah. Blood Meridian and it's very clear that he saw some of those and, and used them. I have not seen an original edition of the Chamberlain book to see if he's referencing the same thing from that book. I don't believe it does that in the Chamberlain book, though, does it? No. Right. I have the facsimile, but beautiful color facsimile edition from the Texas Historical Society. So whatever Chamberlain put in his manuscript is there. And no, it's, it's not the same. But then Chamberlain had a different agenda. Uh, you know, Chamberlain was aging. He was living in Massachusetts. Right. He needed money. And uh, uh, he, he, he had this journal sitting around forever. And he was anxious to finish it. You know, he, he became anxious again to finish it. Uh, and he was working on it when he died. Uh, but he had done all of these hand watercolor illustrations for it. I mean, he had major ideas about publishing this thing. Uh, when he died, nobody else in his family really had much of a clue of what he was up to. And they just put it in a trunk somewhere. And that a great aunt or something of his discovered it a generation later and donated it to West Point. And then uh, Life Magazine got a hold of it. Uh, and they published a semi-facsimile version in, a, I think, four-issue four issue sequence of Life Magazine. And that's where Cormac McCarthy found it, Ah, discovered it. And we should tell listeners who are unaware, one of the main subjects of Sepik's book, but it is the book, uh, My Confession by Samuel Chamberlain, which is the kind of starting point for where the, the whole history of the Glanton gang and their filibustering down in Mexico and scalp hunting and all that comes out of Chamberlain's book. Yeah, Chamberlain as a Chamberlain as a as a uh, as an army AWOL right. uh, at the end of the Mexican War joined up with the historical Glanton gang. Now I think, all right, uh, and we've been through this uh, throughout McCarthy scholarship and at all the conferences it comes up and at that 25th anniversary blood meridian conference, it was all over the place because William Getzman as a guest speaker there was judge Holden for real. Uh, you know, did, did he actually exist? And Getzman did a lot of research on that. And you, you've got to, to think of him as the preeminent authority on the subject. And he came up with the, the he came to the conclusion that no, there never was a historical judge, uh, Judge Holden, and that he's a character that Chamberlain added to the last long chapter of his book 
to have a, a you know Captain Ahab sort of you know noteworthy villain uh. Uh, to spice up the sales of his book. And you can find almost every other character in the Glanton Gang uh, from some other historical source: newspaper article, journals, you know, whatever, court records, you, you know, you know, you name it. Except Judge Holden. You know, the idea that Chamberlain thought this thing up, uh, I think, is 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 wonderful. Or you know, I think we should give Chamberlain more credit than, than he. Or, or possibly yeah, or, he is actually Shiva or is possibly an archon or is possibly a devil. Uh, you yeah. know, we have to be aware of those things. They all look down at his feet to see if they're hooves, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I mean, from a historiographic point of view, I was fascinated by this. I see an old, you know, old gout ridden, you know, arthritis ridden Sam Chamberlain trying to trying to make this thing uh, saleable. And, and that's what it comes up with. Now, what's fascinating about it. So you're telling me that Chamberlain was the first ever true crime podcast where they really built up some of the the more gratuitous sequences in order to make it a better story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Now, I don't doubt that there were people, you know, real people during Chamberlain's years that he could have come posted, you know, to come up with the Judge Holden. In fact, I wrote a... Uh, an article for um, Southwestern American literature some years back. And I think it was called uh, uh, Chamberlain's Holden, uh, Chamberlain's Judge Holden and the role of the scientist in, in American nation building. Ah. And I pointed out that there were a number of people operating in the Southwest who were geologists and uh, rudimentary paleontologists and, uh, and so on, uh, who could have been models for the polymath aspect of Judge Holden. Sure. Well, we think uh, of we think of the uh, Joseph Banks, who was the surgeon slash represented the Royal Geographic Society slash all around scientist who went with Captain Cook on the voyages of discovery, and a very fascinating character, very much the model for the Stephen Maturin character in Patrick O'Brien's wonderful Aubrey and Maturin seafaring novels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he is that kind of guy without the pedophilia, root of all evil, you know, part of him as well. Well, the pedophilia seems to, to be, you know, pretty pretty much Cormac's yeah, <laughs> addition. <laughs> uh, you know, but what I but I think what Cormac did something very remarkable in that he took the the historical political whatness of Judge Holden. I mean, was he real or not? Did he exist or not? And he took it to a kind of a, a theological level. Right. Who or what he, I mean, Chamberlain's Chamberlain's words were, uh, who or what he was, no one knew, but a cooler-blooded villain never went unhung. <laughs> and and then along comes Cormac, and sudden, and, and that, that uncanniness of the judge that was already implicit in Chamberlain gets uh, magnified to this twilight zone level uh, perspective. And I thought that was a, a wonderful. So this is actually a nice segue into the 
casebook series that you created and have edited and co-edited with for for the major I'm, I'm novels. glad you said I'm glad you said co-edited Scott I wouldn't want anybody to be you know slighted you know, on credit I, I kind of threw that in there because of knowing that you're going to get me on it if I didn't that's right <laughs> but but you've been the the, the driving uh, moving force of of nature the kind of hurricane Rick that's been behind these Tell me how it came about, how many there are currently. Uh, well, we can give an update of, of where we are with the, the last one, I think, as part of this as well. But why don't you start us rolling? Okay. Uh, it was just, it was it was a brainstorm. McCarthy's scholarship, as I said, had just mushroomed. Uh, we'd gone from, from trying to find a way to scratch our way in with Gerard uh, to um, Holloway's Marxism and Nell Sullivan's feminism, and uh, I mean, there are a lot of lot of angles. Petra Mundick's uh, wonderful book. She wrote a wonderful book on on McCarthy and Gnosticism, right? And you know, and and the the field really expanding dramatically. I thought, well, we've come to a point now where we should be taking a, a, a blind and barbarous God. Yes, yeah. metaphysics uh, for McCarthy, right? Yeah, yeah. Petra is now teaching high school in Perth. You know, she simply couldn't find an academic, you know, a university level job, which just that's where we are. You know, mm. a, a brilliant woman like that. Uh, I I envy those high school kids. I really do. Yeah. In any case, uh, I thought it was time that we began assembling some of these alternate and cutting edge critiques of McCarthy uh, under one cover. So. Toyed with the idea for a while. The first one we did, of course, was Blood Meridian. You know, they wrote on <clears throat> because I think scholarship on Blood Meridian was outpacing scholarship on all of McCarthy's other works combined. Sure. It was being uh, discovered as a great American, if not the great American novel. And Harold Bloom, of course, was spearheading that move to identify it that way. Uh, so, um, now, I'm trying to remember the man, the gentleman's name. He's, he was at, uh, he's retired now. He was at Brigham Young, Phil, Phil Snyder. Oh, Phil Snyder. Phil Snyder. Yeah. Phil Snyder. He got me in touch with the, uh, the university press at Brigham Young. And they, uh, they gave us a deal on printing that, that paperback, as well as the hardcover editions that you, you couldn't touch on the commercial market. Just phenomenal pricing. So they published uh, both editions. They published the beautiful leather-bound hardcover. I don't know if you ever saw that. I've seen your copy of it that you had at one of the conferences. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, they they published that that marvelous paperback with the Peter Joseph cover. Uh, you know, I mean, you want to you want to cover it. It'll be it'll catch someone's eye. You can't go wrong with Peter Joseph. No. Uh, you know, it's it's just such a marvelous. Book. I have a big painting of James Baldwin by Peter on my wall here that looks more like James Baldwin than he did. <laughs> I mean, he just, he can hit it. It's, it's, it's astonishing. Anyway. Uh, so uh, we put that up on, uh, on uh, Amazon and, and that first printing, I think we did it like 500 copies uh, sold out in, in a couple of months. We've, we've been through about seven printings or eight. Printings That's wonderful. It. That's wonderful. You know, it's, it's really, it financed about four conferences. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah, so, yeah, the, and, and then, then the next, the next one we did was a fait accompli. We had the Sutri stagger in Knoxville. Were you at that? I was indeed. Oh well, Dennis McCarthy and I were standing at the bar of Cormac's brother, 
And let me just take a second to put in a quick plug for Dennis's wonderful novel, Billy the, the Gospel According to Billy the Kid. And Dennis is very much his own writer. Yes. You know, I, I, I can't even begin to imagine how he will, how he fought off that particular anxiety of influence. No. <laughs> well, and you know, I had him on the podcast, Rick, and I asked him that very question. He said, well, who wants to just ride on their brother's coattails? And I was thinking, I, I probably would have <laughs> hopped on piggyback and let him carry me all the way there if it... Uh, yeah, yeah I know it was, but it was, I, it was such a, I love that novel. I, yeah, it's I, excellent. I, it really is wonderful. And I was just about to write an extended essay on it when I had my heart attack. Oh goodness. <laughs> so I, I will, I will circle back to it, Dennis, if you're listening, I'm, I'm still here. I'm still coming back to it anyway. So uh, I was standing at the bar with Dennis and uh, he was telling me the story, which was basically the same story from a drowning incident. One of those short stories that Cormac wrote in college about the puppies, the drowned puppies, and then leaving the dead puppy in the, in the baby brother's bed for revenge. Right. right. And, and Dennis pointed out over that drink, and we had a few, uh, that, <laughs> that the kid in, in a drowning incident was about 10 or 11 years older than, than little baby brother, and that Cormac was about 10 or 11 years older than Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> and he told me the story about showing the, the story to his mother as soon as he discovered it. And his mother read it with a darkening expression. Uh-oh. And when she then then Dennis is hovering over her shoulder, thinking, isn't that great? Isn't that great? Isn't it? And looking up at him and saying, Dennis, that's not the way it happened at all. <laughs> <laughs> So that that just put the stamp of inevitability that the next case case book was going to be to Sutri. And Dennis was kind enough to write that story up and, and send it over to us. And it forms the the intro. Right. To the, the Sutri case book, which was so kind of him. I mean, you understand back in those days, uh, you couldn't breach the McCarthy Castle of privacy. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was he was the uh, uh, he and Thomas Pinchon were the two mysterious strangers out there you know nobody could touch or get near or talk to which wasn't true by the way as i as i said to a newsweek reporter once you guys think that that a writer who won't talk to a reporter won't talk to anybody <laughs> yeah that's just that that's your conceit that's not the way it works yeah and you know it, it uh but the such a case book was beautiful i mean it, it came together so quickly uh, we had so many wonderful pieces for that uh that also uh, the back cover uh, is that that uh, old Knoxville Transit token, right? That that Peter Joseph photographed that that Wes Morgan had given him. Wes Morgan, of course, being a retired psychology professor at University of uh, of Tennessee, Knoxville, who is, I think, probably the ranking authority on the history of of McCarthy and Knoxville. Right. You know, and anything that come out of that. And I will tell anyone referencing the Sutri Stagger and Wes taking us on all of the haunt from the novel, don't wear dress shoes that don't hold up to doing a number of miles on the road. When you go yeah, if you're, hike if, about Knoxville with Wes, with Wes, with Wes walks, Morgan. Yeah. Cause he's well, a great Wes and I went, very quickly. And uh, we those did better than that. Wes took me on a drive from Knoxville. We traced the route of the father and son from, from the road all the way down into the Carolinas, deep into the Carolinas. Uh, we saw the waterfall, uh, you know, we went through, uh, we saw the sign, you know, it, it, it was, it was remarkable. Uh, we wound up at a, at a barbecue joint somewhere, you know, stuffed ourselves with barbecue. And so that's a reference to the cannibalism in the road, I guess. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we we I, we said something. We we exchanged some some stupid comments about uh, well, we're eating better than they did, you know. It's a, but it was it was quite an experience. Uh, Wes also took me up to see the old spray pit from the Orchard Keeper, right? And the uh, and the old VFR tower, right? Uh, the, the UDB beacon that that Uncle Arthur shoots the hole in, you know, at the top of Browns Mountain. Yeah, he's he's done an amazing job of just finding these places and the the amount of literary detective work that he's done is is incredible he even found that pile of slag at the bottom of the ravine from the green fly ins melted booze bottles you know wow that was uh, we were standing on the, in this turn in the road where something had been you know it wasn't called the green fly in but obviously a precursor to it and he, he said yeah i've been down there and <laughs> you know this is all this melted glass down there so uh yeah it, it, any any trip around the, the town with west yet yeah, uh we're uh we're good shoes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. He, he'll definitely walk you. Yeah. And so the third case book is on all the pretty horses. Yeah, that was that was the one that I originally thought should be the first one because it was his best-selling and most popular book. Right. But my blood meridian bias took over. And then the Sutri stagger thing intervened, and uh, that's where the Sutri case book came from. And then uh, the all the pretty horses one was, was a joy. It, it also just fell together beautifully. Yes. It also, all all of these casebook editions have completely sold out. They've all gone through multiple printings. Uh, there's not much of a story, but, you know, for the all the pretty horses, I just put up a call for papers and articles and things, and it, I, I had a stack on my desk like you wouldn't believe. You know? Yeah. It was, it was great. Now, the road. <laughs> 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 yes, let's share a laugh about that. It was just, it was a casebook from hell. I don't know why. I don't know how the stars were aligned. I don't know what demons I must have awakened. <laughs> well, well, let's let's say this: there have been a lot of technical issues, and they are mostly ironed out. The first volume came out. Yeah, eventually. Eventually, and oh, that's what it was too. The the change in the Microsoft uh, uh, page setting software, right? which I had no clue about, you know? So, and, and also we were feeding it with uh, articles from all over the planet with European essays, Asian essays, uh, especially the British essays on the fool's cap paper. Uh, so all the justifications were totally fouled up. Right. And when I got the first galley back, it was just like, you know, it was like Guernica, you know? I mean, yeah. The, yeah. So that, it took us a while to get that under control. I think we're just about under control. We're we're almost there. And if it weren't for all these this silly work I'm being requested to do for this place that actually pays my bills, um, yeah. I think we'd be we'd be right there. We're very very close. Well, I, I have to say that my thanks to you, boundless. You know, without you, I don't even think that damn first volume would have gotten done. <laughs> you know, so uh, you've been a fabulous co-editor. It's been such a joy to work with you. Well, I appreciate it. And there's, I will say to anyone who's interested, there are a lot of great essays in that first volume. And the second volume has a lot of great essays as well. So hopefully before too long here, we'll be wrapping the bow on it and shipping that off to the printer and getting yeah. it done as well. On the other side of that, I have envisioned a, uh, a, a synoptic volume on the three novels prior to Sutri and the two short stories. Oh, great. You know, so it'll be the, 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 the Tennessee phase. I'd love to give each book its own case book, but I think that interest in McCarthy's studies has shifted. Uh, the gravity, the center of gravity has shifted so decisively to the Southwestern work 
Yes. That that just from pure practical, you know, economic uh, considerations, that a single synoptic volume makes more sense. Right. The southwestern work and the road, which is a, a return back to the Appalachians down to the coast, as you said. Yeah, the the road was an outlier. It was, it, you know, where did where did this come from? Thing, right? Yeah, by all means, let's talk about that that issue of, about the the apocalypse and the road. Well, I know that you've always the reason that I've never thought it has to be nuclear winter, and is, and I will say I don't know that McCarthy himself really cares what it is. I tend to actually believe him when he's repeatedly said in interviews. Well, some of the scientists say it seems like this. They spoken to at the Santa Fe Institute, and some of them say it seems like this. And then he kind of shrugs and says, "I don't know." I tend to take <laughs> face value. I actually think it that there's a lot of indication that it could be caldera or supervolcano going off because of the ash in the air. It could also be a meteorite striking, and that's that would also account for the long shear of light. But so could the explosion of a power plant or something that we're told. And to me, the missing thing is fear of radiation. Well, I'll tell you what, this is very interesting. I, I've read quite well. You know, I'm Japanese literature and history and, and film right. is another one of my big. Uh, my other published stuff is on Godzilla. <laughs> it's true. And, and the Cowboy Junkies. Yeah. And Cowboy Junkies. Yeah, that's a whole other story. Anyway. <laughs> so the triangle I've never put together in my head before. Cormac McCarthy, Cowboy Junkies, and Godzilla. And there in the middle of it is Rick Wallach. Yeah, here I am. Well, here, here's the thing. Uh, I, I've read quite a few books on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. One of the things that amazed American scientists and military people during the occupation, you know, post-war occupation, was how rapidly the radiation in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki had dissipated. Correct. Except- it, had, it, had, it, was, it, it was down to, you know, that, that, that famous line from the Chernobyl uh, miniseries on, on BBC, you know, 3.6 Ronkin, not great, not terrible. <laughs> it, 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 had, it had dissipated so much that people were returning to the ruins of Hiroshima and Nagasaki very soon after, and the cities were rebuilt very quick. So that weighed heavily on my evaluation. But there's that scene where uh, the father and son passing through Knoxville itself, and there are dead bodies all over the place, sitting right. on stoops, sitting in cars, lying in the street. Only massive irradiation could account for that. Uh, people just sort of sitting dead in place, sitting, you know, dying where they were sitting on a step. Uh, nothing but radiation could do that. Nothing from a meteorite or a volcano could account for that. So the only other thing that could account for that would be lake overturn. <laughs> but we don't have we don't have any evidence of that. So so those two bombs are, according to my research assistant, Mr. Google, average between you know probably fifteen with the Hiroshima and. 20 kilotons yeah. of explosive damage and the equivalent amount of radioactive debris cast into the atmosphere, I guess. But your average modern H-bomb on strategic missiles averages at anywhere from 100 kilotons to 1.5 megatons. And if we're really seeing a true exchange between superpowers, there's going to be so many more. And you know, We think back to the old debate between the two guys, I guess it was Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley, where he says it's like sitting in a room filled with gasoline, waving packs of matches with each other. Yeah. Science fiction apocalyptic novels, of course, are always incredibly optimistic books Yeah, because they (laughs) presume that the species. Well, they were until the road. (laughs) Until the road. That's right. They 
they presume the species will survive the apocalypse. And the road, of course, leaves that very much in doubt. Now, I, I would argue that the use of religious symbolism undercuts some of what's going on. And we can, that, that's maybe for another time. And even the, I don't know there's been significant, substantive enough consideration of the whole concept of the new earth. Uh, materials from the Gospels and the different ways people read all those discussions, or not the Gospels, but rather the New Testament, I should say, and how that might play into what he's doing as well. But I have always agreed that I don't know, and it, and I wouldn't wrestle anyone over whether it's an H-bomb, because to me, the importance has always been how people react to the horrors rather than what creates oh, the Absolutely. I'd point out also that that, that, uh, that that very gripping scene where the father sees the, the long shear of light and hears the, the concussions uh, and the clock stops. Yeah. That's, that's, that's classic um, uh, electromagnetic pulse. Sure. Right. Again, nuclear, you know. And then the other thing is that he immediately fills the bathtub with water. That's standard. I don't know how, well, I'm a little older than you and I don't remember uh, how long we were still doing nuclear air raid drills in, in elementary school. You know, we were doing the chicken little drills. You right. Know. I didn't duck, have to do any duck, duck and cover and, drills. But duck I, and cover, duck and cover. Yeah. Uh, we used to sing that. But I have I have seen the Atomic Cafe, that, that wonderful documentary, the Atomic Cafe. Oh, isn't Cafe. that great? I, yeah. I love that. But what the father does in those few moments after after the, I, I will just continue, just the bombs go off, is classic 1950s, 1960s nuclear air raid drill civil defense procedure. I don't personally remember uh, any super volcano or meteorite impact procedure, you know, drills. So <laughs> I don't sure. know but, whether they taught the same but thing. When, but I, when a hurricane's coming, what's one of the things people do? So they have enough water, should the water lines get fouled or the electricity go off? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I did the you big feel bottle of, a big bottle of a big uh, flat of uh, Spring Hill, you know. Well, you raid, yeah. that's right. You raid the you raid the Walmart for all the remaining water. But you also are supposed to fill your tubs to have water to use for other purposes. Although I've always told people you really don't want to drink out of your bathtub, do you, if you can help it? No. And of course, another thing that sometimes makes the clock stop is the power goes off. So, uh, you know, just throwing that out there, it could be an EMP. Or it could be the power went out. So uh, I still think it's yeah. It's yeah, a volcano in, would not. A volcano would not power out. Yeah, not it, not on your wall clock. <laughs> it, you know, it, most wall clocks are battery powered these days anyway, and then yeah, and they're not hardened. You yeah, know, that's true. I'm, I'm with you. I hear you. I I, I still think that that it's kind of like arguing over what kind of saddle John Grady would have had as he crossed the Rio Grande. To me, it's a little more important he got across the river. Yeah, really. I, I thought I thought I thought the saddle was a very nice touch. Yeah. I well, have heard... fire and damnation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now I have heard from a spy in your camp that you are possibly working on a collected a book of collected essays. I can't imagine who that could have been. Peter's helping me with he's going to yeah, he doesn't know it yet, uh, but he's gonna edit that. And oh uh, he is, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Peter and I have had this mutual admiration society for 40 years. You know, this nauseated everybody around us. And, we're, <laughs> and I'm very proud of it. But yes, it was Peter who egged me into, you know, he said, look, get them all together, put them all together. It's, you got to do it. So I've been doing it. Uh, and I've been finding things. You really have been writing about McCarthy for over 30 years now. Of course. Uh, for, yeah, and, or 30 years, uh, just about 30 years. And it's, it's, 
uncanny how much stuff I wrote that I didn't even remember writing <laughs> until I started looking for this stuff again. I couldn't remember titles. I couldn't remember. You asked me where that was published. I couldn't tell you. I could tell you where my Patrick White stuff was published. And by the way, journal editors have been very indulgent with me with McCarthy <laughs> stuff. They have not, they were not with, with, with Patrick White. Uh, I'll tell you a quick funny story about that, because that's what got me to Australia and, and to McCarthy in the first place. Patrick White was a, a very out gay public figure, and it, it sort of served Australia right that their first and only Nobel laureate would be a homosexual. You know, <laughs> I would think I think of every time I go down there, you know, he broke it open for the gay community down there. There was a Jungian analyst, uh, a Jungian critic named David Tacey who wrote a book about him called Patrick White, Fiction and the Unconscious. And Kate and, and Tacey, uh, like Jung, was a, a virulent homophobic. That the people who were really into Jung don't seem to realize that about him. And uh, Tacey's book was all, uh, you know, the, the terrible influence that Patrick White's mother had on him, turning him to a homosexual. And one of the pieces of evidence that Tacey uses for the overt influence of White's mother, who, by the way, was a dominating and imperious creature hmm. and one of the wealthiest women in Australia, yeah. was that uh, White always seems to focus on uh, detailed descriptions of people's faces, uh, you know, tongues, beards, teeth, lips, and so on. And that, that this is evidence of the, of the, you know, Jungian cannibal vulva, vagina dentata archetype. Right. And so I, my, I wrote a scathing article called On the Limits of Archetypal Criticism. Hmm. That was published in the Australian, the Journal of Australian American Literary Studies. This has got to be like 1988, 89, something like that. And one of the lines I had in there was, uh, if every every uh, vision of tongues, lips, and teeth reminds our critic of the uh, cannibal vagina, one has to wonder what he sees in the mirror in the morning when he shaves. And uh, <laughs> that was the only line they excised from the article. Wow. I was crushed. <laughs> 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 but I've always, you know, I think you've probably noticed this about my articles. That they're always a little tongue in cheek. Yeah. There's you know? usually, there's usually I, a good I, joke snuck in yeah. there somewhere. Yeah. And, and Peter, of course, is much more overt about that than me. And I remember him complaining to you about the, uh, the aversion of literary journal editors to that kind of writing. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with him. It's just that I have both feet on the academic side of the divide and Peter only had a toe over, you know. <laughs> well, and speaking of the, the, academic divide it is interesting mccarthy is a person that we want to appreciate in two different ways we intellectually want to appreciate him in terms of our research and scholarship and all the ways we can dig in and unfurl these kind of scrolls of information that he leaves in his his works and there's also simply enjoying the art of it and so you are known for pushing him on anyone you can so this is a little bit of a silly question and it's kind of a almost like a newspaper reporter question, Rick. So apologies in advance. But let me ask you this, because this is what I would have let off if we'd done this one of his first two or three podcasts way back then. Why should people read McCarthy? And why should they love the works of Cormac McCarthy? I don't think everybody should read McCarthy. <laughs> I've matured in my view of that. I no longer try and force waitresses at restaurants to read Blood Meridian. But I think anybody who's literate should read McCarthy. Right. You know, because there is no greater craftsmen of the English language mm. uh, in writing in, in America today. And so I used to tell my students the beginning of every critical writing course I ever taught, 
And, you know, the one-on-ones where I had all those football scholarships <laughs> <laughs> was, look, you only have two possible relationships with your language. You can understand it and understand how it operates on you, or you can spend your entire life being manipulated by people who understand it and understand how it operates on you. You don't have a third choice. So make up your mind. Which one are you going to be? Yeah. All right. And there, there is no greater challenge to your understanding of what the English language is and how it works and how it can work. And, and of, of all the uh, the supernormal sign stimuli, I'll call them, that slumber in language that can be awakened by a great craftsman like McCarthy. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell, who was, a, who was an old friend of mine uh, and and uh, with whom I worked in the, in the 70s, uh, in the introduction to Primitive Mythology, the first volume of his uh, Masks, of, Masks of God trilogy, mm. noted that the supernormal sign stimuli said, look, you take a grayling moth, uh, and he's always attracted to mate with the darkest female because I guess the genes for hardiness and reproductive fecundity and so on are, are, are tied up with the melanism and, you know, but if you take a, the darkest live female grayling you can find, and you put her in a little cage with a cardboard black grayling, the male will, will mate with the cardboard. Huh. <laughs> there is a, a blackness that, you know, uh, an attraction to that blackness that operates in in the uh, instincts of the moth that is beyond anything it would ever encounter in nature. Right. And, uh, you know, I thought that, and, and McCarthy and, and Campbell's point was that myths are work the same way. Myths are, are beyond nature, but they awaken responses that nature doesn't have anything but a latent capacity to awaken. Language has a latent capacity to awaken remarkable emotional, spiritual, intellectual responses in us. Mm. But you need a craftsman like McCarthy to be that that dummy grayling moth, you know, that right. that black moth, and and bring that close enough to the surface to where it can impact you. And I think for me anyway, that is the most fundamental reason to read McCarthy. And then there's just to me the sheer joy of this. I mean, the storytelling is is, is wonderful. Yeah. I agree, and I think I'll probably always be eternally grateful to the Cohen brothers. And I'll remind you that at this Sutri Stagger, you and I got into a lengthy discussion about the early works of the Cohen brothers, and that was 2004, Rick, around yeah, that time. Yeah. And yeah. we agreed that if anyone should ever adapt a novel by Cormac McCarthy, there is is indisputable that the Cohen brothers were the people to do it. And yeah, it, and then they. But except, that, except that we were thinking it was, would be Sutri, Sutri, and they wind up doing No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Well, it, it took him five years to get the hint, but they, of course, yeah. went with, at, at that time, his penultimate book, since The Road had come out, and I guess the play had come out after that, too. Obviously, there's very little you can say against that wonderful uh, film of No Country that they did, except for one thing, for me anyway, and this is just a, my bias and I've annoyed people with it multiple times, but they cut out the scene where Sugar returns the money to the cartel. Yeah. I think that was a terrible mistake. I think it makes it makes Sugar's motivations and complexity uh, much greater, you know, much more interesting. Uh, it, but it also gives you a chill because you realize, knowing what he's already done, huh. that he's setting up the first stages of his takeover of that cartel. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. He's going to kill off everybody in that room. Uh, it, but there's also the bit about the painting. You know, that's the replica. I keep the original in a vault. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
one of my favorite lines, one word lines in all of literature. Yeah. Excellent. You know? Well, and for me, of course, the missing thing from the adaptation, and I'm so impressed with it because they did so much you never expect them to do, such as the way Llewellyn dies. I was sure they would change that. And the fact that they, they honor it, it still astounds yeah. me. But for me, the significant change is freeing the book from its setting and also connected to that, not having Ed Tom Bell be a World War II vet, because I think his interest in and connections to Llewellyn is all about their shared veteran status and the way to kind of see the world. And there's definitely stuff going on with that. And they by removing that. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's also one of the one of the points I made. Uh, Manuel Brancano has had me coming down to um, uh, Texas A&M International in, in Laredo on a number of occasions uh, to lecture on McCarthy. And I talked about the golden bird in uh, in uh, the Yeats poem. Selling to Byzantium. to Byzantium, yeah. And I said, you know... The, the water trough, the stone water trough at the end of No Country is the golden bird. You know, it's McCarthy's answer to that golden bird. It's it's uh, it operates through the through the film on so many levels. What is you know? what is past? What is past? And, and, and what is still um, to come? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I thought he did a wonderful job. And by the way, let me interject also another little anecdote, which is the story of Frendo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know the story, right? I probably do, but I don't know the listeners well, and I'm worried I'll get it wrong. So. Just after the just after the movie came out, which I two thousand five or two thousand six, whatever it was, uh, a friend of mine down the street was cleaning out some tires in his backyard, and he flipped over the bottom tire, and there was a baby pygmy rattlesnake under the tire, and he he put a jar over it, and this thing could curl up on a quarter, you know, which is right. kind of funny too. And, and he called me and he said, "Hey, I know you like snakes." I got this baby rattler here. I got four dogs in my, I, I can't have it here. If you don't want it, I'll kill it. Didn't want him to kill it. So I ran over, I, I picked it up, brought it home, put it in a tank. And I went on McCarthy form and I put up a name Rick's rattlesnake contest. <laughs> and you can, you can search back to like 2006 in the form archives. Uh-huh. You'll, find, you'll find the whole thread. Uh, and I said, you know, give me a name for my, my pygmy rattlesnake. And uh, uh, whoever gives me the winning name, I'll bake you a homemade raspberry cheesecake. <laughs> And I, I got a whole bunch of entries, and the winner was Frendo. It's submitted by a, a, an attorney in Schenectady, New York. And I duly baked cheesecake, froze it, packaged it, and FedExed it up to him. And so it's all in the thread. It's, it's hilarious. That is and, hilarious. And I, kept, <laughs> and I kept Frendo for 11 years until he died. And th- their normal lifespan, they tell me, in the wild is eight years. So he did really well. He did. And I will tell you, now, what I've told you at many other times hearing Frendo's stories, if you consider all the seminal texts, such as the first few books of the Bible and the Telegenesis, or yeah. the essential 70s television series for children, Land and Lost, or The Road, it's mammals versus reptiles all the way back. You got to choose a side, Rick. The reptiles are the wrong ones. Oh, I've definitely chosen the uh, the reptiles. Um, uh, you're, all right, you're, see, you'd be the guy. Although I must up. tell you, I must tell you that I also have a thing for marsupials. Okay, yeah, but you had no problem cannibalizing them. We noticed. So, uh, we'll have to, okay. So <laughs> I already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it because I always ask all the guests their first time on the podcast. What is your favorite McCarthy novel? I think we've established it pretty well, and I think you've also explained very well why it is. But let's go ahead and say it. For the record, someone shows up with a pneumatic 
animal slaughter gun in their hands and puts yeah. it in your head and says, which one is it? You it's say, blood. oh, it's, it's blood meridian. Of course. It's, it's blood meridian. And, and no country runs at a close second. Which is really interesting because when it first came out, you and Chip were not fond of it particularly. And I organized a panel within the month of it having been released. And a lot of our long-term colleagues in the Cormac McCarthy Society have heard the story so many times that they're going to, so they can fast forward by, by a minute real quickly and skip it. No, I, organized, I organized a panel with you, uh, Edwin T. Arnold, Farrell Gorman, and myself on this new novel at this SAMLA, South Atlantic Modern Language Association Conference. I remember it well, yeah. Well, and at the very last second, you weren't able to attend because there was a hurricane coming. And unfortunately, you put your house ahead of my panel. Yeah. And we've, we'll let it slide. That's why I remember it so well. Yeah, and you made, you made up for it at, other, at later panels I put together, and I appreciate that. The other thing is, of course, our audience consisted of one person. Here I have the excellent Farrell Gorman. I have the two of the great founding members of, all, of the Cormac McCarthy Society and all this early work. And he's got this new book out, and it's not getting uh, really gr- all great reviews. And a lot of people's understanding of McCarthy came from that book. And you start hearing all this laconic, simple language, very influenced by Hemingway. None of those things have been used to describe him before. And so it is fascinating to me that it's so grown in your estimation. And it just shows people what reading, rereading, researching, digging in really does to someone. I And I don't know that I would have guessed it. I knew you esteemed it highly. I don't know if I would have guessed it's your, your second favorite, though. So I find that really interesting and fascinating. Well, for many years, Sutri was my second favorite. And then, then, then lightning struck, and I wrote that, uh, that, that talk for the uh, American Literature Association, which was really a no country and uh, the sun also rises, you know, the Hemingway-McCarthy thing that was right. the theme of that, of that meeting. And uh, in, it really, it was in researching and rereading No Country for that paper that I found all the hidden treasures in it. Really, it, you know. And you know what we can say regarding the novels of McCarthy, and you can't say this about Faulkner, who was very prolific, and you can't say it about Hemingway, who has not published as many novels, who did not publish as many novels as McCarthy, is McCarthy has not written a bad novel. They're all good, and they're... He has written one god off. He has written an awful screenplay, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. Now, Brian Gibson tells me he's going to redeem it in our eyes, and I... To quote Hemingway, isn't it pretty to think so? I look forward to seeing yeah. what he's going to do. Brian, <laughs> Brian's the smartest guy out there, so I am very fascinated to see where he'll go with it, but still. So having heard about the degree in theology, it brings me around to some of the work you did on Blood Meridian that's seminal and interesting, which is uh, Shiva symbolism in the, the novel. And not only Shiva, but the Kali, I guess, yeah. multi-armed goddess of death, and also the Gnosticism. So those are things where you've been able to wed a couple of your earlier interests in with your McCarthy studies. Well, anyone who's interested in that subject, I mean, that first that first essay I wrote was Judge Holden, you know, Blood Meridian's Evil Archon is the one you're referring to, uh, where I talked about the Shiva imagery. And anyone who's interested in the whole subject of Gnosticism in, in, in Blood Meridian or any of McCarthy's work should get a hold of the Bloody and Barbarous God, you know, Pe- yes. Petra Mundick's wonderful yeah, it's book. One, it's excellent. And, uh, but, but that, 
I, uh, I had written my, my master's thesis for theology uh, as a comparison of the, the Kundalini Yoga of the Hindu Tantra, uh, for which I studied Sanskrit for several years, and the Luriana Kabbalah, for which I had studied Hebrew from a bar mitzvah. <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, uh, and it was still very fresh in my mind. I've always managed, wanted to drag that out and redo it, you know, like clean it up and redo it and publish that as an essay. But it was written before, it was written on an IBM Selectric. It was an way pre word processor and i just couldn't bring myself retype the whole thing oh, of course <laughs> but but it was still fresh in my mind when i wrote that essay you know when i wrote that that holden essay also by the way i i studied at the university of chicago under two of the greatest scholars of of uh of, of shiva and shaivite you know ism uh one was marshall Eliade, uh and the other was wendy donegar o'flaherty uh, who wrote uh, Eros and Asceticism in the uh, erotic, uh, yeah, Eros and Asceticism in the Mythology of Sheba. Uh, and so I had a head full of that stuff too. You know, I'm kind of cracked up by how we do research and how different we approach it in some ways, Rick, because I will think of all the Western novels I read as a kid and see how McCarthy's playing with those. And then I'll go look up a few easily come by books on the history of revolvers in the old West and so on. And then I yeah. get a paper out of it on how McCarthy uh, toys with all these things and the use of weapons in his books. And, and that great you, whole earth catalog essay on making yeah, gunpowder. <laughs> and you, and you, on the other hand, have, you know, are studying with world renowned experts and having to learn Sanskrit and digging deep. And so, uh, it is illuminating, if if somewhat humbling, to to those of us who are are, are not quite up to following those footsteps all the way. Well, you know, it, I, I'll tell you, I'm now, I'm now on the cusp of studying Japanese. I've got all this downtime. I have these uh, books on Japanese, you know, Japanese language and CDs in Japanese. And uh, oh God, that is a brain bender. I mean, I thought Sanskrit was tough. This is it. it, it it's brutal. <laughs> The, and that's one of the ways we know you're retired from the teaching part of your life, because if you're still reading freshman essays, there's just not enough wattage left at the end of the week to struggle your way through Japanese. Well, I could I could have done it uh, at that time yeah, be, because I, I had the enthusiasm when I was younger. Right. A little more energy. Uh, but it's not just the freshmen. You know, the University of Miami is a big football school. Right. You know. And, uh, you know, I, see, my daughter was going to the magnet school at South Miami High, and I drop her there at seven o'clock in the bloody morning to go take her, her, her special classes in arts and performance. And then I'd be at the university. There was nobody there. I could park right next to the Ash Building. You know, I mean, it was like, it was, it was heaven. Or park right next to the student center uh, and go in and have in, into that Fox, you know, Fox Starbucks in the basement. So I got to trade off with, with people and take that 8 a.m. 101 section, which was full of football players. You know, because they, they, they'd take their classes in the morning and they'd be out banging heads in, in the afternoon. Right. And boy, I tell you, moving a thought through the head of some of these football scholarships, that could take it out of you. But you know what book they love more than anything? Take What's a that? wild guess. Blood Meridian. Oh, wow. They, they just enjoyed the... Uh... They loved it. But to get them to love it, I had to perform it. Oh, well, that's what that might be what they loved is watching you pretending to be whatever it was, (laughs) whatever it was, I would perform the Reverend Green scene, 
never even heard of him. And, and they would get hysterical and they'd read it. They'd struggle through it. They'd, 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 they'd come over to me and say, what does this word mean? You know, crenellated. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's hilarious. Rick, I so appreciate you taking this time to talk to me. I think it was a pleasure. Before we before we do our our out, I think I will also let us take maybe a minute to put out some uh, heartfelt thoughts and prayers toward our friend and colleague, and again, like you, a seminal member of the Cormac McCarthy Society as well as the field of Cormac McCarthy Studies, Edwin T. Arnold or Chip, as he's known to his friends. He's not doing well, some health concerns, and out of respect for his privacy, we won't go into detail, but. It is with great affection we think of him and Absolutely. great affection of how much he did for you. talked about the first wave of scholars and the, the new wave of scholars and then the, the people who came just after that. Uh, I guess I put myself in that wave. I, I had thought myself in second wave. I guess I'm getting pushed back a little further. But Chip was so instrumental in bringing so many of us together and his kindness and generosity. And he's had a, a rough time in many ways the last decade or so. And it just makes it that much harder to know he's going through this. So I don't know if he hears this, but regardless, we just are, are thinking of him, praying for him. And we hope that maybe somehow things will get better. Thanks to today's guest, Rick Wallach. Rick is a founding member of the Cormac McCarthy Society. He is senior editor of the Cormac McCarthy Society casebook series, and he is editor of the two-volume collection of essays, Sacred Violence, as well as Myth, Legend, Dust, Critical Responses to Cormac McCarthy, and co-editor with Linnea Chapman King and late James Welsh from novel to film, No Country for Old Men. He's written widely and extensively on numerous topics in literature, film, media, and contemporary music, such as that of the Cowboy Junkies. Thanks, as always, to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced theme music and interludes for Reading McCarthy. To contact me, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. The website is at readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can click on the little heart symbol at the top of the page to buy the show a cappuccino, or you can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash readingmccarthy. Thank you again for listening.